Coming up on Golf Today, a Hall of Fame Thursday, two-time Masters champ Ben Crenshaw joins the program to talk about his design work at Kapalua, the countdown to Augusta, and we get his take on the state of the pro game. And Nancy Lopez stops by to pay her respects to friend and mentor Kathy Whitworth. We'll ask Nancy about her favorite memories and moments with the 88-time LPGA winner. And rounding out our Hall of Fame lineup, MLB's John Smoltz says hello, ahead of teeing it up once again with the LPGA pros. Hey, bada, 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 swing, bada. It's golf today. Golf today. A good Thursday to you. Earlier today, an annual tradition took place that signals the beginning of the Century Tournament of Champions on Maui. Prior to the first tee ball being struck, cultural advisor Clifford Naoli blessed the first tee at Kapalua, one of the prettiest spots in the game of golf. How about the opening tee shot of the year, struck at 9.30 a.m. local time by Canada's Adam Svensson, winner of the RSM Classic by two in round one of the new year is officially underway. This is Golf Today. Damon Hack alongside, once again, Eamon Lynch of Golf Week magazine. I got to be honest, this is one of my favorite days of the year. I love the golf course cut out of this pineapple plantation. I love the views, the topography, the geography. I love it all. It's been 46 days since the last shot was struck in competition on the PGA Tour, which is a long, cold winter around these parts, Damon, and I know it's, I'm with you on this, I know it's week 10 of 44, <laughs> the PGA Tour schedule, it feels to me like the start of the year, I think a lot of players feel as though it's the start of their actual season, mm. and it, next year it will be, when we move to the calendar year schedule again. Feels like the start of something special, and I tell you, the strength of the field at the Century Tournament of Champions, it is robust, 17 of the top 20, 8 of the top 10, with Scotty Scheffler being the highest ranked player in this field, he of course, the player of the year one year ago. You see John Rahm at five, Victor Hovland rounding out the top 10 at number 10. Let's welcome in Todd Lewis from Maui. Now, Todd, what should we know about the 2021 U.S. Open champ? Well, John Rahm loves the plantation course here at Kapalua. Now, you have to remember, John Rahm grew up on the coast of Spain, and when he gets on a course that is near water, Consciously or subconsciously, he just feels at home. Look what he did at Torrey Pines, winning the U.S. Open there and the Farmers Insurance Open as well. And, yes, Cam Smith had a remarkable run last year, that 34 under par. It's a new 72-hole scoring record, two par on the PGA Tour. But that's just one shot better than John Rahm, who owns the second lowest total for 72 holes on the PGA Tour. I caught up with John earlier this week, and I asked him what makes him so comfortable and confident here at Kapalua. I've played well every time I've come to this golf course. I've had a chance to win, especially last year. It was really close all, all, all tournaments. So just knowing that I can do it, just keep on going. Um, obviously, the course varies, and this course varies a lot based on the wind and, and the golf course conditions, right? The last few years has been rather soft. Uh, and from what I hear, it might be a little bit firmer this year, so that would change a little bit. But I'm just comfortable in it. I think it's a happy week for everybody. You're in Maui. You're on a bit of a vacation for the family, right? And... I think that relaxed atmosphere helps me play a little bit better as well, as, as well as, you know, how well I've done it off the tee in the past. It's been, a, it's been a weapon of mine and always gave me a lot of birdie opportunities. So I think that's why I've been able to put myself in position. Help, help me go through your head and managing being relaxed and then at the same time being as competitive as you are here. Uh, I think the relaxed part is more for before and after. Hey, well, I just step on the golf course and start to start, it's time to start the warm-up. Uh, as business as usual, but once you're done, you're in Hawaii. You can go relax by the pool, and on days like today, same thing, right? I mean, you're done with practice, you go relax by the pool. Maybe things I wouldn't do on a regular week, just because for the family, you know, we try to treat it as a relaxed vacation as well. Now, John Rahm is an aggressive player by nature, and the plantation course here rewards aggressive play, wide fairways, large greens. So that fits into the game plan for John Rahm. Now you look at his season. Last season, in 21 and 22, he won only one time in Mexico, and he had kind of a subpar season, at least to John Rahm's standards. And during his press conference this week, he explained why. For people that 
may not believe it, uh, I battled my swing most of the year. I wasn't as comfortable as I was the year prior, and and that showed. And then when you go to major championship golf, where you need to be better in every single way, um, you know those mistakes are going to show. Now, that was last season, but look what he has done in the latter part of 2022. In his last five worldwide starts, he had yet to finish outside the top ten. Two victories, one coming in his home country of Spain. That is such a difficult challenge, trying to win in your home country for John Rahm. And then winning the season-ending DP World Tour Championship on the DP World Tour, which is a big event on that tour as well. So he has recaptured some of that confidence with his swing and his attitude. One other note, he has been testing a brand-new driver here at Cop Lua. Not certain he's going to put it in play, but if... If the last few days are any indications, he's likely to put it in play today. And, of course, they're a little straighter. They're a little longer when they come out with these new drivers. So we'll see if that works for John Rahm here today and the next three days. Guys? John Rahm finding some form at the end of 2022. We'll see if it carries over to 2023. Great stuff, as always, from Todd Lewis. Take a look at the tee time for John Rahm. Alongside Matt Fitzpatrick, a little European Ryder Cup mojo. They tee off 5.35 p.m. Eastern time, round one at the Century Tournament of Champions. Let's hone in some more on John Rahm. Welcome in, Paige McKenzie. Paige, where do you see John Rahm entering 2023? Well, I'm excited about what he has to say about where his game is and was uh, last year. Uh, he talked about the, the missteps with whatever strokes gain approach or his approach shots, but what he talked about was the weapon and the strength that is his driver. Now, in particular, this week, that's going to be very important. Fairways are extremely wide. Uh, it can be, as he said in his own words, uh, a weapon in position to get birdie at this golf course. And when you look at it, he's been a top five driver of the golf ball since he's been out on tour. Strokes gained off of the tee has been in the top five since since he joined the PGA Tour, and last year he was number one on the PGA Tour in that category. But what's amazing to me is that he's trending based on some added distance as well. Uh, not just accuracy, because that's a combined, the strokes gain is kind of how far you get it down the fairway uh, relative to everyone else and positioning uh, for your next shot. But you look in, two, in 2020, 307 yards, and again, top five in strokes gain off of the tee at that point. A little bit better the following year, and then last year, a huge jump. So when I say that he's the best driver in the game, strokes gain off of the tee, it's not only the best in the game, it's the best of his career in where he has been, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that he's added some distance. Interesting to see this new driver. Could it be even better than where he was at last year off of the tee? Yeah, that's a fascinating development. He can find that much more distance considering he's already one of the longer hitters in the game. I was fascinated to hear him talk about kind of battling his swing last year because the statistics will tell you that they weren't that far off from 2021 when he won that U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. Let's take a look at some of the strokes gained ball striking comparison numbers. 2021, he was second off the tee. First, as Paige talked about, approach. That's where he slipped a little bit from 8 to T38. But T to green, first to 12 total first to seventh, so not that big of a drop-off, Eamon, but to hear him talk about him battling his swing, and then you see the struggles in major championships, and it kind of makes sense that, you know, you're not having the, the top tens that you're used to having in majors, because those are the events that ask the most difficult questions, you know, firm, fast conditions, higher rough, and if you're not comfortable, you're just not going to score. Yeah, and John Round pointed out that the margin for error in major championships is almost non-existent. Right. He finished no better than a tie for 12th in the U.S. Open this year versus the previous year's major championships in eighth was his worst finish. But I, I just wonder if you're one of his rivals and you're sitting in the locker room and you hear John Ram talk about how he struggled with his swing <laughs> all of last year. He made 23 starts. He won three times. He was second twice. He was third. Didn't miss a single cut. Uh, that's got to be worrisome for those guys if, if John Ram thinks that was an off year. And he has sounded somewhat sensitive to criticism over the last couple of months of the perception that he wasn't having a great year. Now, his, his year got a lot better towards the end when he won the Spanish Open and then won the DP World Tour Championship in Dubai. What, what struck me last year was if you're looking for untidiness in John Ram's game, 
it's closer to the business end of the hole with his short game. And if you take a look at the particular statistics in his strokes gained around the green, his sand save percentages and his scrambling, there is a significant drop off last year from the year before. And he's basically around 140th or worse in all three of those categories. And those are pretty significant drop offs from very consistent positions in the rankings before that. And it, but to me, it just speaks to the fact that the, the differences in John Ram's game, are there are no critical weaknesses in the guy's game. I mean, when you look at the numbers that Paige brought up and the numbers that you brought up, there is a striking consistency mm. of excellence to it. That's what struck me about the short game numbers because it's really the only real glaring point in John Ram's game where you think there's a significant drop-off. But again, the guy's top five in the world and he won three times last year. If that's his bad year and his good year is going to be pretty good. Well, I walked away from Whistling Straits in that Ryder Cup thinking he was the best player in the world by far. I just, just, just by the eyeball test, watching the way he went around that golf course, I felt that it was him and then everybody else. Paige, I'm curious if you think he is close to getting back to that level of performance and really dominance with the numbers that you cite, especially with the driver. Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, he is my pick for 2023 as, as it relates to a, a horse to ride to the finish line. And, and a lot of it has to do with everything that we've brought up today is that there is a striking and glaring weakness in the short game. But everything else is so good. I mentioned everything off of the tee, but in addition to that, his putting was a second best putting year of his career. And I think when you have those pieces and those components in, the, in play, I just feel like he can clean up the mess. He can clean up whatever needs to be done with the short game. As he mentioned, maybe there needs to be something done a little bit with the approach. But given that it was a relatively mediocre year yet, to Eamon's point, he had a lot of success. I just see that there's a massive upside as it relates to John Rahm. There is a massive upside. I also think there's, I'm not say a massive chip, but there is a chip on the shoulder and a sensitivity <laughs> that you talk about, Eamon, and I think that's going to be an asset. I think it is an asset to athletes for time memorial. You know, you don't win, you know, 82 times like Tiger or, or seven Super Bowls like Tom Brady if you don't sometimes build a straw man or, or, or find a reason to, to get mad and to turn that into to trophies page. Well, it was so funny because I, and I don't know what has been said by other analysts or other f people around him or in the media. But in his press conference yesterday, he also mentioned, well, I know people were talking about how bad my putting was, and it really wasn't that bad. I, I was just further away from the hole. I'm like, who was saying your putting was bad? Like, like I said, when I looked at the numbers, I'm saying this is one of the best putting years of your career, statistically. Uh, so he's letting that marinate. He's remembering the negative comments that have, have come. And I agree with you, I think to some extent, that's great. He gets to prove them wrong. And if that's what motivates and fuels his fire, great. All, all the better. He really is the second coming of Seve oh, in that 100%. respect as well, except for the short game. You could make a very credible argument right now that John Ram, for all of this conversation about him think, saying he's fighting a swing or this perception that his year was somehow substandard, you can make a case that John Ram is the most informed player in the world. Mm. I mean, he's won two out of his last four starts between the Spanish Open and the DP World Tour Championship. And he's coming to a golf course where he shot the second best score in the history of the PGA Tour yes. last year and didn't win. And as he pointed out there to Todd Lewis, he feels comfortable here. He thinks he's got a chance to win every time he comes to a golf course like this. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the bookies have him as the favorite this week too. He wants his game respected. And I also think that he wants his voice to be heard in this era where we're asking players about not just the, the birdies and bogeys, but about the state of professional golf. He's trying to find his role and wonders where his voice fits relative to Tiger's voice and, and Rory's voice. John Rahm wants to, to matter, wants his game to matter, and wants his voice to matter as well. And he'll soon have something else to talk about because coming up next, Rex Huggard is joining us. He's got some breaking news on what the fall portion of the PGA Tour schedule looks like going forward and what it means. Stay with us. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort.
There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply with more on some changes coming to the fall. Let's welcome in Rex Hoggard. Rex, what should we know? What's coming? Got to look at a tentative schedule starting later this fall. And it will be interesting, like everything else when it comes to the PGA Tour right now. It's very much in flux. And so this is probably going to change. But right now, the interesting thing is last fall, there were nine events on that schedule. There's going to be seven on the schedule that I saw gone. It's Houston, which you just mentioned that Tony Finau won in the other is the CJ Cup. Now, that's interesting when you sit and you look at it because it's fewer playing opportunities, and that's going to be the narrative going into the fall. And keep in mind, it's not going to be the same fall anymore. This will not be part of the proper FedEx Cup schedule going forward starting this fall. It's going to be more of a seeding series where those players outside the top 70 from the previous season's FedEx Cup championship will have to go into these series and improve their status going into the next year. So there you see it on your screen. It starts with the Fortinet Championship. That's two weeks after the Tour Championship. There is a bit of a gap. And then it looks familiar going forward. Sanderson Farms, they go to Las Vegas for the Shriners Children's Open. The Zozo Championship remains on the schedule. Now, the Worldwide Technology Championship is an interesting one because if you remember correctly where it has been played historically, that venue will now be a Live Golf venue starting in February. Live Golf is going to start their season there. So I've been told that they have to find a new venue for that event, but it will, from what I've been told, stay in Mexico and then Bermuda and finally RSL. What do you think the reaction is going to be to these proposed changes or tentative changes, Rex? Not so much among the elite players because we're not likely to see them play very much in the fall at all, but in terms of the, for want of a better term, the journeyman players or those who aren't in that elite top 50 group what do you think they're going to react to when they see that? I think it's going to be a twofold conversation. First and foremost, I mentioned playing opportunities. And when you start talking about anyone outside the top 70 is going to have to play in these events one way or the other. And so those are still opportunities for them, but they will not be part of the FedEx Cup schedule. They will not get FedEx Cup points. The other part of this is, will they get a master's invitation? If you were to win one of these events, I spoke with Kevin Kisner last year at the RSM Classic. He seems to think that they will continue to get that invitation and that's a huge carrot but that remains to be seen the other half of this is exactly what they're going to mean what's it going to mean to these specific events depending on what the fields look like going into it and i guess houston would have been the best example and we don't know if houston is going to move itself into the regular fedex cup schedule or go away entirely but tony finau won that event last fall that was a pretty big win for tony and a pretty big win for the Houston Open, you don't know if you're going to get one of those top players at that event, and it's certainly something that the sponsors are going to think about. How much of a loss would it be to not have a, a Houston Open established in 1946? Uh, three or four years ago, an article in the Houston Chronicle said the Houston Open, sponsorless and homeless. And then Jim Crane of the Astros comes in, gives it an identity, Memorial Park as well. How important is it that the tour continues to patronize that city in particular? Certainly Jim Crane, what he did for it and how they reworked Memorial Park there in downtown Houston. And it's become a, a very, very good venue, not just for the tournament because it's closer to the city center, but also the players seem to like it. But go back before that, Damon, you know Steve Timms. He's the former tournament director. He actually moved that event to the week before the Masters, which for most tournaments, that would have been a drawback. You're not going to get top players. And he turned it into something of a tune-up for Augusta National, as close as you can get. I know no course is going to be Augusta National, but he made – players think about going there. He gave them a reason to come and try to prepare for the Masters going into the next week. So it's going through, it's gone through a lot of iterations. And as you pointed out, it's been a staple. 1946, it's one of the longest running events on the PGA Tour. And obviously, players would not be very, very happy if it was taken off the schedule entirely. Probably worth pointing out, Rex, that the first major of the LPGA Tour season, the Chevron Championship, now moving to Houston as well. So there may be an issue of how much of the, the market is cannibalized by that. Is it possible or feasible that Houston may be on the full calendar year schedule that we see in 2024? Because it seems that every time 
a little bit more leaks out of what the future of the PGA Tour looks like. It brings perhaps even more questions than it does answers. And one of those big questions is what does that full year of 2024 look like? And I've been told by people internally at the PGA Tour that they're still trying to sort that out. They have a general idea of what 2024 is going to look like. But as I said, there's a lot of moving parts when it comes to this new schedule and the designated events and exactly which events are going to remain sort of in that special category. But to your point, absolutely. I think the Houston Open, from everything I have heard, wanted to move into that proper FedEx Cup schedule. They wanted to move probably into the spring where they had been before, maybe as a tune-up for the Masters as they were before there just aren't many spots on the calendar i guess the most obvious one you would look at would be the honda classic which honda as we all know now is stepping away after this year's event they will not have a tournament sponsor so that seems to be a likely spot but what i've been told they're working hard to try to find a replacement sponsor there so again this is kind of a shell game and the tour is going to have to figure out where this lands For more be sure to check out rex's article on golfchannel.com rex thank you so much thanks damon but after the break, we'll have one Hall of Famer paying tribute to another. Nancy Lopez will join us to remember her friend and rival, Kathy Whitworth, who died Christmas Eve at the age of 83. We'll be right back. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Welcome back to Golf Today. On Christmas Eve, the golf world lost one of its greatest champions, Kathy Whitworth, at the age of 83. Born in Texas in 1939, Kathy had earned 88 LPGA Tour victories by the mid-1980s, six more than fellow LPGA Hall of Fame member Mickey Wright. Her wins total is also six more than the PGA Tour men's record shared by Sam Snead and Tiger Woods. Whitworth captained the inaugural Solheim Cup in 1990 at Lake Nona Golf and Country Club in Orlando. The U.S. beat the Europeans 11.5 to 4.5. Nancy Lopez was a member of that team. And Nancy took to social media after Whitworth passed away, saying, my heart is so sad that we have lost a true legend, Kathy Whitworth. She was so supportive when I was a rookie on the LPGA Tour. She was my captain in the first Solheim Cup. She meant so much to golf and fellow players. Rest in peace, Kathy, you will be missed. With more on the life and legacy of Kathy Whitworth, we are joined by the Hall of Famer, Nancy Lopez. Nancy, when you burst on the scene, in 1978, Kathy was still very competitive. She finished runner-up to you in 78 and 79. What do you remember about being around her for the first time? Um, Kathy was just special. Um, she, um, whenever I was around her, I just liked to listen to her wisdom. Um, <clears throat> you know, she was always supportive, as I said. Um, when we were, as, you're, as a young player, you come out on the tour and you're not really sure how you're going to be accepted. But Kathy Whitworth was so positive to me and to all the young players. I, I really, truly believe that she felt like we were the next generation that was going to carry the torch for the LPGA. Um, the times that I played with her, she was such a great player, such a great competitor, great sportsmanship. Um, I learned a lot from her. And I, I was talking about her earlier today, and she, she was really kind of funny because she would really beat herself up on the golf course by, you know, if she didn't hit a good shot, she'd say, Kathy, what's wrong with you? You know, you're just not good today. And she would just really pick on herself. But, you know, that's the way she motivated herself. And I just always admired her and 
to stop the world of her as so many players on the LPJ Tour did. Nancy, we've all read the list of accomplishments. We've seen all of the, the six majors, the Vera Trophy Awards, the Player of the Year titles, everything that's read out at a Hall of Fame induction ceremony. But what was Kathy Whitworth like as a person? She was um, a lady, uh, professional. Um, she was kind. Um, she was uh, funny, uh, had a great sense of humor. Um, I remember the first time I met her, I think I was 15 years old. She came to Roswell, New Mexico, where I lived. Her and uh, Carol Mann did clinics together. And I think she and Carol Mann impressed me so much at that young age that, you know, I really thought maybe I'm, at that time I would think about turning professional one day. Uh, but they were just, they were awesome. Their personalities were great. Uh, but like I said, she was a kind lady. I think there were even times when I sat down with her uh, to talk about just even my personal life. And she was a great listener and just really a good friend, too. We talked to Judy Rankin yesterday, Nancy. She said Kathy was a player. 88 wins, more than 90 runner-up finishes. What did you appreciate about Kathy's game? Her short game was awesome. <laughs> we used to always joke that she could get uh, up and down from a trash can. Uh, she was so good, her short game was. Um, and, and like I said, she was tough on herself, but I think that's the way she drove herself to play even better golf. Nancy, there's a question I asked Judy Rankin yesterday because Kathy Whitworth was runner-up to Judy three times. She was also runner-up to you twice in those 95 second-place finishes to go with the 88 wins. Did it mean more to you holding off someone like Kathy Whitworth? I know you have respect for all of the opponents you've beaten over the years, but when you finished first and Kathy Whitworth finished second, did that mean a little bit more to you? Oh, absolutely. When you beat one of the best in golf, um, that's when you win a golf tournament and you beat the biggest and best deal there at the tournament, that's a feather in your cap. But when if you can go out there and beat Kathy Whitworth, who was such a great competitor, um, you know, that's definitely um, a, a fantastic win for you in your career. Um, but like I said, she was a great champion and she was also... She had such great sportsmanship, and I think you learn a lot by watching someone like Kathy. Um, I respected her so much. I remember when I was a rookie on the tour, and back then we would put balls on the tee to see who was going to tee off next, and my ball was ahead of hers, and she comes walking up to the tee, and I pretty much felt like I was seeing the queen, and I said, Kathy, go ahead and hit it. I didn't want to go ahead and play, play ahead of her, and I, I believe I probably even joined her that day. Um, but she was just, she was approachable. I think that's what a lot of, a lot of professional athletes aren't always approachable, but she was that player that you pretty much could, you, on, on the front of her golf shirt, you could see approachable. And that's just how she was. Well, Nancy, you've been a captain yourself and you've played for captains. What was her leadership style at that Solheim Cup in 1990? She was pretty calm. Um, you know, it was our first tournament. We were as on, as a Solheim Cup team, and we felt a lot of pressure. We were nervous. You know, here we are representing our country, and Kathy was pretty laid back. She just said, "Go out there, girls, and just play the best you can, and that's all that mattered." And she was. She, I think she calmed us because we were all so nervous about playing in the Sol first Solheim Cup uh, back in 1990. She had 88 wins, Nancy. You had 48. When you look around the LPGA turnaround, if we leave aside Carrie Webb, who's semi-retired, I guess, at this point, the player with the most number of wins who's still active is Inby Park with 21. Are we ever going to see the likes of Kathy Whitworth again in terms of either dominance or longevity? Because she did compete well into her 50s. Yeah, she did. She played for a long time. I don't think you'll ever see a player like Kathy Whitworth to be able to win that many golf tournaments and compete the way that she did through, you know, the beginning of golf and <clears throat> through the times where, when there were really great players on the tour. Not that there weren't early, but there were more of them, I think, as, as the tour grew. Um, so she was still such a competitor, and I think she loved competing. Um, I was telling somebody today, you know, I always thought, of, I always think about writing letters to the players that um, I admire and, and and really thought the world of on the LPJ tour and unfortunately I didn't get to write her that letter which is really sad because I I really had thought about it more in the last month because I saw a picture of her with a friend of mine and she was having lunch with her like for example I wrote a letter to Mickey Wright and told her how great she was and
thanked her for all that she did for the LPGA tour. And then I wrote one to Patty Berg. And I just really, it really breaks my heart that I didn't write that letter to Kathy Whitworth because she meant so much to me in my life on the LPGA tour. And, and she was, like I said, so supportive. And I think she was that way with everybody. Um, so she was special and, you know, we will miss her. And I just really hate that I didn't get to write that letter to her. In the couple of weeks since Kathy died, is there one moment or one story that has come back to you that you keep telling people about just your outstanding memory of Kathy Whitworth? Um, you know, I, I tell the story. We were once, there were a bunch of players sitting around, we were telling stories and <clears throat> it was a funny story. And I, I looked at Kathy, I said, Kathy, you know, back in the day when you wore that beehive and you wore a lot of hairspray on it and she knew what we were, she knew what we were talking about. I said the players, we would get out to the golf course if the wind was blowing really hard. And um, we would say, you know, is it a one club wind or a two club wind? And we said, well, if we look at Kathy's hair and it's moving, it's definitely a two club wind. And she got a kick out of that when we told her that story. And she said, I can't believe in, in that Southern voice she had that you, that you all would talk about my hair like that. <laughs> That's a wonderful story. And it's such a tough loss for our game, Nancy. Thank you for sharing your yeah. thoughts and memories of Kathy. Thank you so much. And we will miss her. And I, I will think about her when I'm out on the golf course. And I will remember all the good times and the good feelings I had playing with Kathy Whitworth. No question about it. And as we go to break, we continue to honor the life and legacy of one of the great winners in the history of golf, Kathy Whitworth, who passed away at the age of 83. With more on the action at Coppa Lewis, welcome back, Todd Lewis. T. Lou, Colin Morikawa coming off a tough year for him. What can you tell us about his attitude entering 2023? Yeah, he did not play as well as he had the previous couple of years. Uh, didn't get a win on the PGA Tour, and he struggled with his golf swing. Now, we've talked about Colin Morikawa's strength being between his ears. He's 25 years of age, but he has such great maturity, both mentally and emotionally. But last year, his struggles got to him. He was very, very frustrated. So he decided to get a checkup from the neck up in the latter part of the year. And in the fall, he decided that he's just going to hit the ball and accept where it lands. And that's as simple as it goes for him. And with that, he has created more freedom. And if you've looked at how he has played over this last couple of starts, Mayakoba, the hero, he has played better. And so that mentality, that freedom is definitely helping him on the golf course, at least to improve on what he was doing earlier in 2022. He has made an equipment change, a pretty significant one as well. He has gone to his manufacturer's latest new driver that was just put on the conforming list by the USGA uh, last week. And this is the first new driver he has put in his bag since turning a professional. He's had the same driver since 2019. So this is a big change for him, but as wide as these fairways are, this is a good place to competitively test that new driver. Todd, one of the players we're going to see in the coverage this evening is Justin Thomas, who also has a pretty good record at Kapalua. You caught up with him earlier this week. What did he tell you? Well, he likes Hawaii, that's for sure. He not only has won here twice, but he also has won at the Sony Open on Honolulu, or on Oahu, rather, in Honolulu. So he really enjoys that Hawaii vibe. Look at his results here. Now, this is his seventh start. In his last six starts, he's got two wins. Uh, he's finished inside the top five in his last four starts here at the Plantation Course. And, yes, I did catch up with JT, and I asked him just what is the connectivity between a guy from Kentucky and the Hawaiian Islands. I mean, I think the course fits me a little bit, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely don't. Obviously, it's, it, it is Hawaii. It's, it's a relaxing week. It's laid back. But I also uh, learned the lesson first couple years of playing of, you know, this is a really good opportunity to try to come here and win a golf tournament. And, um, you know, I don't take it lightly. I'm, I'm prepping like I would for anything else. And, and I'm just trying to, you know, get ready and give myself a good chance. And, and the golf course is, you know, it's big fairways. And, Depending on the conditions you're going to get, you can get very, very soft um, to where you're just C-pin, hit-pin, and just try to make a bunch of birdies. I don't know. I, I, I can't fathom ever skipping this event. I mean, I love this event. I, even if you're only playing in one versus here and Sony, it's just it's, it's, it's an unbelievable week. I don't know what the number one thing is. I mean, the fact that you're here is a, is a serious accomplishment. Sure. Obviously, it's a little different now with the Tour Championship being added, but... 
it's a it's a huge huge honor um and just kind of a little thing that i, I really you know i don't take lightly goal. Every year. yeah for sure you know you want to start the year or i want to start the year here uh i can't speak for everybody else but i know i've done something right if uh, if i start the year at kapalua he feels pretty comfortable with this golf swing. He played in the Hero World Challenge, and he also played at the PNC Championship with his dad, Mike, in Orlando. So he doesn't have that much competitive rust coming into this event. And obviously, as you heard, he loves the vibe here on the Hawaiian Island. So Justin Thomas is in a good frame of mind competitively and a good frame of mind off the course, too, because if you remember, late last year, he married his fiance. Jillian, so she is here along with the rest of the family, and this is a great place to continue the celebration of not only the nuptials, but the way he is playing on the golf course as well. Guys? No doubt, Todd Lewis breaking it all down for us at the Century Tournament of Champions. And speaking of JT, let's flash back to 2012 when he was a little bitty baby. Start of the day, five shots off the lead in the final round of the Jones Cup Invitational. Fired a final round 69 to win as a freshman at the University of Alabama. 2023 edition of the Jones Cup Invitational begins tomorrow at Ocean Forest Golf Club. First contested in 2001 at Ocean Forest, the Jones Cup Invitational brings together many of the finest amateurs from the United States and abroad. Played over 54 holes, 84 players are in the field this week with 11 different countries represented. Jones Cup Invitational champion receives an exemption into the RSM Classic, which is played at Sea Island Golf Club in November. Well, back in May, Damon, freshman Gordon Sargent, Vanderbilt, hold a five-foot birdie putt on the 18th green at Greyhawk Golf Club in Scottsdale, Arizona, to win the NCAA Men's Individual Golf Championship. He joined Ben Crenshaw, Curtis Strange, and Phil Mickelson as freshmen to have won a national championship. And today, Augusta National announced that Gordon Sargent has accepted a special invitation to play in the Masters. Gordon becomes the first amateur to accept a special invitation to the Masters since Aaron Baddeley. 2000. Here's Gordon's slightly disbelieving reaction to the news from the range at this week's Jones Cup Invitational. I just saw Augusta National under like the phone number, so I answer and I'm like, hello. <laughs> and then the guy's like, oh, sorry, did I wake you up? And I was like, uh, no, so, no. And then he tells me his name, and of course I just like completely forget like what he told me because it just goes right over my head. Sure. And then he's like talking me through it, so I'm like, this guy knows way too much for this not to be real. But then at the same time, I'm thinking like, who is calling me to like, prank me or whatever right. and then he hangs it up and I'm like, I don't, I was like that was real and my dad's like what was his name and I was like I, no I, I, I went blank I can't I remember. Don't remember and then um then he texted me to confirm that I was accepting so I was like uh, yeah I'll accept but like not I, but so then I'm, I'm still thinking it's not real sure but I'm trying to look up this guy's phone number and all this stuff and I not finding anything and then um the next day he like sent me like a email with like and it had like his title on the bottom and I was like all right like I think it's real so then I like told Limbaugh and Limbaugh's like you think it's real and I was like I think so and then yesterday or two days ago he officially called me and was like like we're sending you the invitation like all this stuff the first rule of the masters is chairman Ridley does not make prank calls <laughs> this anyway. is true but in this era of Scott Stallings having his you know invitation sent to Scott Stallings the real estate guy in Atlanta maybe you know, young Gordon was like, wait a second, is this truly meant for me, this this phone call? I love how special it still is for these players, young and old, to get that invitation and just how raw the emotion and disbelieving that Gordon Sargent was that he, as an NCAA champ, will be, you know, playing in the Masters and just how important that connectivity is between Augusta National and the amateur player. It, it mattered at the inception of the Masters and it matters today. And it's nice to see Augusta National push the barrier a little bit in terms of the, the criteria by which they invite players, because even though he is the NCAA individual champion, uh, he's not actually eligible for the Masters, which typically invites in, obviously, the US amateur, the, the British amateur champion, the Latin American amateur, the Asia Pacific. There are many criteria by which amateurs play at Augusta National, but the NCAA has not historically been one of them. So it's nice to see that pushed out. And it didn't just stop with uh, Mr. Sargent either, Kazuki Higa, Japanese mm. tour player, who's won six times over there, 27-year-old. Four of those wins came in the last year. He's number 68 mm. in the official world golf ranking. He also gets the invite to play the Masters. And I believe we have young Mr. Sargent joining us on this Thursday. Gordon, congratulations. First of all, how much are you still pinching yourself about what's coming your way this April? 
Um, just a little bit. It's kind of setting in with talking to everybody. But, um, yeah, it was a little surreal just kind of getting the call out of the blue and trying to figure out what was going on, um, making sure someone wasn't pranking me for a second. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty special. Gordon, a lot of guys who make their, their debut at Augusta National, they, they reach out to veterans, asking them to play a practice round, trying to soak up some of that knowledge. Or who's your dream practice round partner at Augusta National? I'm sure you haven't had time to reach out to anyone yet, but who would you like to play that practice round with? Mm, I haven't really thought about it too much, but uh, playing with like Rory or some guys like that who've had a lot of success on the tour would be really cool and just kind of picking their brain and kind of seeing how they go about things because hopefully that's where we all want to be in the future. So just kind of someone who's got a lot of experience would be really cool. Gordon, how do you keep things simple at this point? You know, you win the NCAAs, you get called by Augusta National, you're competing in the Jones Cup. A lot of things are happening very quickly. How do you kind of keep things simple, focus on your golf, tee, green, make putts? Yeah, I think this week's big with, like, the Jones Cup, just kind of focusing on that and not really just, like, the Masters is going to be there in a couple months, and, like, it's obviously a really big deal, but just kind of focusing on playing good, good golf this week and um, continuing to get better. And then in college golf, just being there for your teammates and looking forward to the national championship again. So just kind of continue to get better and um, practice with them and see with them uh, day in and day out. Gordon, it's a pretty elite list of guys who've won the national championship as freshmen. Phil Mickelson, Curtis Strange, Ben Crenshaw. Do you feel as though since you made that putt to win the national title that you go out with a much bigger target on your back, including this week in the Jones Cup? I think so. Um, it just, but it also gives you a lot of confidence that you can compete in like the best tournaments in the world, um, and especially in amateur golf. Just knowing that you're one of the best ones out there and proving to yourself that you can win is special and gives you a lot of confidence. Gordon, congratulations on going to the Masters. Best of luck this week. They have fantastic warm chocolate chip cookies, as you know, on St. Simon. So have a couple cookies and play well this week. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, he is Gordon Sargent on his way to the Masters. Still to come on golf today. He's one of the best pitchers in the history of baseball and a member of the Hall of Fame, but he's pretty good at golf as well. Two-time winner of the Hilton Grand Resorts Tournament of Champions, John Smoltz. Smoltzy joins us next. Golf Central Update, brought to you by Callaway Golf. Back on golf today, when this dude was on the mound, meant trouble. John Smoltz pitched in the major leagues for 22 seasons, winning 213 games, making the All-Star game eight times, twice led the NL in wins, innings pitched, strikeouts, elected the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2015. Fantastic broadcaster as well. You see World Series champ, eight-time All-Star, won the Cy Young, NLCS MVP, Hall of Famer, 213 wins. And don't forget... Monster out of the bullpen as well, 154 career saves. Well, since he stepped off the mound, Damon Smoltz has found success in golf. Started playing at the age of 19 when he was in the minor leagues. In 2019, he captured the celebrity portion of the Hilton Grand Resorts Tournament of Champions for his first significant competitive victory. 2020, he successfully defended his title, and later this month, he's going to be going for his third victory in the tournament. We're pleased now to be joined by John Smoltz. John, thanks for joining us. You've performed athletically in high-pressure situations before. How does the nerves of pitching in a World Series compare with the nerves you first felt when you walked out into that public setting with a driver in your hand on the first tee? Yeah, I don't think the average golfer sitting at home understands what that's like. I'd rather be pitching and the bases loaded and uh, not have any room for, for air. I'd feel more comfortable in the mound. Golf definitely has its moment of time that you have to think. Uh, too much time for me. Um, when you pitch, you get the ball, and every 20 seconds or so, you get to deliver the next pitch. When you're playing golf and you're walking and you're obviously taking on the uh, elements of uh, Mother Nature, you have a lot of time to think uh, about things that probably shouldn't come up in your head. So I'd say that golf definitely gave me more nerves than anything I've ever competed in in baseball or any other sport for that matter because it's all team sport oriented. You had people that could bail you out, pick you up, and, um, you know, that's not, that's not what golf is. It's all about you. Any similarity between closing out a baseball game and closing out a tournament on the 18th green? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, the, the anxious moments of closing out a baseball game, the adrenaline rushes through the roof. 
Uh, you can't really have that kind of adrenaline rush and use it to your advantage, I don't think, in golf. I think you got to have an even keel approach. And it's one thing if you're playing in the group and you know that's the only competitors you have to beat, that would be one thing. And closing it out in golf would be similar to closing out a baseball game because when you come in a baseball game, it's all about you getting the job done. And if you don't, you get interviewed and everybody looks at you like, what have you done? You blew the game. And it's similar in golf. If you get into situations that you're not comfortable with, that's where the nerves really get you more than anything. And what I'm so amazed about these tournament of champions, the LPGA, and really every professional golfer, there's some nerves, but it's in their office. They feel like they can hit the shots that they need to hit. And winning a tournament, though, is different. I'm sure everyone who has an opportunity to win for their first time has learned something valuable that they either use for them in the future or uh, makes them better. And sometimes, you know, damages them mentally if, if it's a big blown lead or something like that. John, Tiger Woods said that you're the best non-professional he's ever played with. Did that set a pretty high bar for you every time you went out in public with your golf clubs after that to try to live up to that? Yeah, it ruined me. <laughs> <laughs> I never got any more shots. But, um, you know, all those years of playing with Tiger, learned so much. And I'm not so sure how many, you know, non professionals he's played with but it's a flattering comment we had our our share of fun and I, I just I tell people all the time you have no idea what it was like to play live with a the greatest player in the world tv doesn't do it justice um you know it was just a, a tremendous challenge to say the least it wasn't going to be about me winning uh a, a low you know gross score it was about me competing with one of the greatest in the world and getting a chance to play with Annika too was something so special I'll never forget but yeah, it definitely ruined me um, from the standpoint of, of that notoriety got out and, you know, my shots just went to nothing. John, when you're with Tiger or you're with Annika or, or Larry Fitzgerald, what are some things you see in them that you see in yourself? Well, the competitive drive that every athlete has in their own sport is something unique. It's why you climb the ladder of success and get to the top. And, you know, I've played with, the, I, I think, the two greatest uh, male athletes as far as competitors go in, in Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan. I don't, I just don't, I'm sure if, if I would have had a chance to play with Kobe in golf, I, he'd probably be up there too. But, but those two are just fierce competitors. Annika in her realm was about as fierce as it gets. And, you know, when you try to use what you were able to do in your own sport and try to talk trash with the greatest in the golf, that there's, there's no value in that. So I never did that never talk trash in any sense of the fashion in their arena. It's like stepping into their stage and thinking you can one up them. It's not going to happen, but I just learned their will to win and their imagination is second to none. I don't think people understand the imagination that a golfer has to have to be creative in shots that let's face it. They're not in the woods a lot, but when they have to make these kind of shots, it's second nature to them. Their ability to adapt is unbelievable. John, I ran into Brandel Chambly this morning. He told me I had to ask you about the influence of data in sport, this idea of using launch monitors and technology to influence technique. We see a lot of it in baseball. We see probably even more of it in golf these days. Are you a fan of that trend or not so much? I'm a fan of blend, blending the trend. I'm not a fan of all in the one bucket. I think it can paralyze you. The one thing we've never done a good job is uh, isolating the personalities and the people that can handle it. There are some people that are obsessed by it. It drives them. It makes them who they are. That's great. Let them use those tools. But then there's people that it can paralyze, and it can become the, the driving force that, that the outcome is secondary because you're chasing data. And I would have been that guy that needed a half-and-half half type approach because, you know, I'm a self-taught baseball player, golfer, basketball player. Everything I've ever done, I've self-taught. So I'm a field player. And in the data world, that would, that would paralyze my brain and to take over, and I'd lose that feel. So I think sports has gone too far in cases where the information outruns the fundamentals, it outruns the feel, and it damages the game in a way because now you become robotic. So if there's the, the ability to have blend, and, and use your talent and feel and all those assets that you can put together, I think it's great. But if you are at a driving range and all your data is driven off a computer and you don't understand the mechanics of it and you're trying to reach a certain number, I think there can be danger in that. Same thing with throwing a baseball, hitting a baseball, 
all those things are valuable, but all in one bucket, it becomes dangerous, I think. John, we've spoken to you quite a bit through the years. It's always an education. Thanks for the time. Best of luck as you chase title number three later this month. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. We're coming up. One of the most respected, respected and thoughtful figures in the game is here, Ben Crenshaw, two-time Masters champion who co-designed this week's venue at Kapalua. We talk architecture, the Masters, even live golf. That's next, right after the break. Well, Damon, Ben Crenshaw, Bill Kerr, the most respected design partnership in all of golf. Together, they've created celebrated courses like Sand Hills, Friars Head, Cabot Cliffs, Banded Trails. And one of their earliest joint creations was the Plantation Course at Kapalua, which has hosted the Century Tournament of Champions for 25 years. The course was opened in 1991. The largest renovation by Bill and Ben occurred back in 2019, one of several over the years, and it's a stout 7,596 yards from the back tees of 440 feet of elevation change from top to bottom. We're pleased to be joined now by the two-time Masters champion and the designer of the plantation course at Kapalua, Ben Crenshaw. Ben, the course has been open for a little over 30 years. It's been 25 years. It's been hosting the Tournament of Champions. Do you still after all these years, get a little thrill watching the best in the world tested on your work? I do, Eamon. It's, a, you know, the golf course, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a very dramatic golf course. Obviously, a lot of change in elevation. Uh, you have to know how to play golf in the wind. The, the uh, golf course was expressly designed for having wide accommodation, for people playing there other than the tournament, there's some harsh conditions up there. Uh, the wind, I've played in the wind and it could almost knock you down. So you had to go a little wider, no question, uh, to accommodate people. Um, there's relatively little rough. Uh, a lot of scores, as y'all will see, is dependent on the wind and where it's blowing and what direction it's coming out of. Uh, it's very much an imaginative golf course. Uh, you have to play it by feel. You have to know its slopes and bounces. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a fun test. Not meant to be punishing, uh, but uh, if you know how to play it and play those slopes, you can shoot a good score, no question. Ben, I read where you and Julie got married at the old Kapalua Bay Hotel that you and Mark Rolfing had taken a walk at sunset on the property, and that's how you discovered Kapalua. What, what do you recall in those moments? Oh, I would, well, it's, the place is very special to Julie and I. That was 37 years ago we got married at Kapalua. And one afternoon, Mark said, well, I need to take you up for a little ride. So we go up the hill, and he drives to a certain spot, and we look down towards the water and he said you think you can make a golf course here and i said well this is spectacular uh, it's 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 a lot of slope here but we'll see what we can do um and i think as i remember we had a corona beer with with us <laughs> but no it was so much fun and mark and debbie gave us a great opportunity um, and it gives us a thrill every time we see it. It's really a beautiful golf course. It sure is. And I always wanted to ask you about the challenges of building a golf course in that era, especially with the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s. How challenging was it during that era? Oh, well, the, the course, Eamon, was playing very hard and fast. You know, when you have a new golf course, the turf is not quite knitted in just yet, so the ball runs a mile. The ball runs there anyway. I'll never forget this. Andy Bean made a made a, a, a double eagle on the last hole. He had a driver and a six iron, <laughs> you know, which is the log downhill par five. But uh, you, there's some unusual things that happened on that golf course. And as I say, you have to play it by feel. I think the hardest thing to do is your approach shots. Uh, you have to learn how to to flight the ball and have a certain amount of spin, and, and it's how you play shots against the wind to hold it up or let it ride with the wind. So a lot of local knowledge is, is, is required. you got to play it a few times to get the feel of it. Ben, tell us about the projects that you're working on now. I know you've got a couple of 
exciting openings coming in this year with Cabot St. Lucia, Golf Course MacArthur down in Hope Sound in Florida. What else is on your agenda? Yes, uh, MacArthur is growing in nicely. That's a wonderful, wonderful golf course, the second course for MacArthur. Uh, we did one for in Alabama at uh, Willow Point, almost to Auburn, east of Birmingham. Uh, we'll, we'll start a course in Montana in the spring. Uh, there's a Bahamas golf course that we're starting. Uh, it's on private island. Uh, we have a number of things on our plate. We've, we're probably busy for the next four or five years. Uh, it's seeming like everyone wants to play golf. Uh, and it seems like all the, when I travel around the country, all the, the, uh, waiting lists are full. Uh, it's done tremendous for the golf industry, but I love that people are engaged in the game. And you know what? I, your previous guest, uh, John Smoltz is one of the great pitchers of all time. So happy for him making it in the Hall of Fame. I'll never forget this. One year at Augusta, I was playing, and I looked up, and I saw John Smoltz and Greg Maddox following me around. I couldn't believe it. I was a little bit nervous when I saw that. But uh, what a great career he's had. I know he loves golf. He's really good at it, but uh, very happy for him. I bet they were nervous when they saw two-time Masters champ Ben Crenshaw. And you don't just build courses. You also, I guess, Bill Kerr calls them rejuvenate golf courses. In 2019, when you went back to Kapalua, you know, added tee boxes, lengthened. What did you guys want to accomplish? Well, I mean, I think there's, there's a sense that you almost can't make golf courses long enough these days. So you've got to make them interesting. We recontoured a few greens uh, maybe added a bunker here and there. Uh, but I, I know that, uh, we're not so much in guarding scores there, but it's a different test. Uh, we like it that people enjoy playing it. It's a different kind of golf course and where you have to play by feel <clears throat> and imagination. Uh, it's not, uh, it's not cut and dried, uh, with that much elevation change and that many things that you have to think of when you're standing over a golf shot. You have to think about how far uphill or downhill, where are you going to land it, where are you going to have, have it finish. And you said it's almost impossible to make golf courses long enough these days, which is a recurring debate in this game, which will probably kick off again this year with the USGA's distance insights reports and whatever action they take. How concerned are you on this debate of distance versus sustainable architecture? Yeah, I, I think I, I don't like it so much that a lot of our world's great courses are becoming slightly more obsolete. I don't like that. <clears throat> I think a constant review of technology, how far balls hit, and what implements that people are playing with you don't want to see it get out of hand. I'm, I'm very much old school that way. Um, it's, we're at a friction point. Uh, I hope it's not too harsh, but uh, especially in tournament, tournament situations, uh, you, don't want, you don't want to see the world's great courses go, uh, become a pushover. You don't want to see that. Distance remains one of the big topics in the game. When golf day returns, we're going to ask Ben Crenshaw to stick around for a few more minutes to discuss the state of the game, what he expects to see at Augusta National later this year. That's next. Welcome back to Golf Today. In the final round of the 1984 Masters, Ben Crenshaw made one of the most historic putts in the history of the tournament. A 60-footer for birdie on the 10th hole went on to win his first major title by two strokes over Tom Watson. 11 years later, Crenshaw won a second green jacket by a single shot over Davis Love III. It was an emotional and memorable win for Ben as his longtime swing instructor, Harvey Peenick, had died the previous Sunday. Ben Crenshaw joins us again now. Ben, you joined the PGA Tour back in 1973, competed out there for more than 40 years. How do you feel when you look around the landscape of golf now, when you see, you know, obviously, this creation of Live Golf, you see a lot of divisiveness out there on the PGA Tour. What's your reaction to all of that? Hey, man, I, um, as you imagine, you probably imagine how I feel. I, 
I owe my life to golf. I don't like uh, what's going on, I must be honest. Uh, I don't like to see breakups of relationships that have been uh, combined over a long period of time. I happen to think that there are things in golf uh, and in life that are more important than money. I, I have a lifetime of friendships and memories that will last me. It doesn't, it doesn't come in, but I just don't like it that, you know, golf so far has stayed above a lot of things that have been disruptive to the game, but I, I must, I'm, I, I don't like what's going on. Uh, I wish it were different, but uh, we're seeing it played out on on a game that I've loved and a lot of people have, have loved. I, I think the best competition is on the PGA Tour, no question about that. I think we've seen great leadership uh, and uh, Justin Thomas uh, and Rory McIlroy. I can't applaud them enough. I just hate that these relationships are torn. I, I don't like that at all. When you look at that live situation, Ben, you're obviously, and you say, loyal to the PGA Tour and what it's given you over the years. Do you look upon this issue as purely a, a business thing, or do you have a problem where the money comes from in terms of, of live golf? Is there a moral aspect to this at all that you find troubling in any way? Well, I think it's, at least in my view, money has eclipsed a lot of other things that are are what makes golf what it is around the world. Uh, it means a lot to a lot of people. And it, intrinsic, you know, it does it has nothing to do with with the monetary side. I, competition, I think, is first and foremost. I mean, you've got a, a four-round competition in the PGA Tour, and you feel like you're playing against your against the best against a different format that uh, Yes, let's say it has a lot to do with money, uh, which skews a lot of people's opinion. Uh, you know, you read the financial pages these days, and, and obviously money is a huge specter about whatever happens. But uh, I don't know. I'm just one of these old-fashioned people who believe in relationships and what you can gain from the game from a societal uh aspect and what it means to other people uh, and how to keep growing the game. That's kind of where I'm coming from. Ben, Masters Champions, as you know, represents such a unique group. It's a fraternity, but some members of that fraternity <coughs> have opted to compete for live. Six in all will be at that champions dinner on Tuesday in Augusta. How potentially awkward could that be? Uh, to tell you the truth, Damon, I don't know what's going to happen. Our job is to honor the champion, Scotty Scheffler, uh, <clears throat> not only for winning the tournament, but what an unbelievably wonderful career and year he had last year. Emerged as one of the best players in the world. Uh, our job is to honor him. It's his night. Uh, and, uh, you know, each of us have earned a lifetime exemption into that tournament. Um, but our job is to honor the current champion, Scotty. Masters is going to be the first time that we see live golfers collide with PGA Tour golfers this year, Ben. Are you in any way concerned that it's going to be a, a circus of some kind that will actually detract from the tournament? I sure hope not, Eamon. I mean, it's, it's, a, <clears throat> it's a tournament in which uh, the champion can change his whole life. I mean, it's a life-giving memory, and there's no doubt about that. <clears throat> but I hope the focus is on the champion and the tournament. <clears throat> but I don't know. I just really don't know. I've, I've been worried about it, I must be honest. Well, Ben, you've seen so much and accomplished so much. You've been leaned on for counsel from players of all ages. Have you thought about stepping in in taking a more vocal role, or have you taken a more vocal role behind the <coughs> scenes uh, in this era of fractured professional golf? I have, I have not been asked thus to date. 
I think people know me uh, from what I've always thought about the game in the past, and that's just me. Uh, I just think that throughout history, the game has proven itself to to span anyone's life in playing the game. But what I, I'm I'm concerned about was what it does to others and how the game continues to be guided by people who really care and the great players and, and how people feel about it. And you've talked a lot in this interview about relationships that come through golf, about the integrity of, of competition. You knew Greg Norman well. You competed against Greg Norman. Has your opinion of Greg Norman changed over the last year? Well, I'd say this, that I'll never forget playing in the Shark shootout 30 years ago where Greg announced that, well, we're going to have another, we're going to have an international tour. We went, what? Uh, it was very much a surprise then. But, uh, no, I, 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 let's not say degraded. I played against him, and I had a lot of respect for how, <clears throat> what, a, what a great player he was. But I don't know. This thing just seems pretty imbalanced. And I don't know where it's going. I don't know if it'll catch on. Uh, but uh, very bold, very bold, just like the way that he played. I think that's sort of a parallel there. Uh, we'll see. You're right, Ben. No one knows where it's going. Where would you like it to go? I'd, I'd like... I don't know. I just I wish that people could value what the game means to so many people. What it's meant to these guys that have played their whole career on the tour, trying to climb the ladder, trying to get better, trying to best each other in competition. <coughs> Excuse me. The focus on that hopefully is not lost because that pure competition, whether you're talking about the four majors and how you stack up against the rest of your career or the masters, I wish the focus was on the pure competition. I don't know where it's going from here because it's it's been on people's mind, and uh, we'll see. I, I just don't know where we're going. I want to ask you a question about your playing career, Ben. Obviously, you had a great career, two majors, 19 victories, but you own what is to me the most mystifying statistic in PGA Tour history. You're 0 for 8 in career playoffs. <laughs> it started against Tom Watson in 1978, all the way up to lost a four-man playoff at the Nelson in 92. How does Ben Crenshaw not make a putt in one of those playoffs? <laughs> hey, but I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up. But I, I, people have asked me, I said, look, I'm spotless in my career playoffs. Zero for 8. It's amazing. I've lost a couple that I never should have, and I had a couple. Of I remember David Graham in 1979 at the PGA lost the playoff to him, but in reality I had no business in that playoff because David double bogeyed the 72nd hole. Um, I don't know. It just never happened uh, correctly, but, uh, wow, I, I sure wish I could have won a couple more of those. You sure did a lot of winning in your career as an amateur and as a professional as well. Ben, uh, it's always an education. Your wisdom is appreciated on this Thursday. Happy New Year. We'll speak to you down the road. Best to Julie and the family. Thank you. Happy New Year to you both. I sure enjoy listening to you both. Have, have a great telecast today.